Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. I'm Anand Upadhyay. Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. Everyone has opinions on millennials. A quick scroll through LinkedIn reveals article after article describing how millennials are entitled or disadvantaged or simply misunderstood. Today on the Modern Lawyer Podcast, we speak with J.P. Box, a lawyer, entrepreneur, author, and millennial. After a career in Amlaw 100 firms, J.P. left law practice dissatisfied with his experience. After changing his career, he just couldn't kick the feeling that there was some shared experience causing many lawyers of his generation to leave the law. He decided to explore this, and through years of research and discussion, he became an expert in showing law firms how to get the most productivity out of their millennial attorneys. He's concluded that there are clear, simple steps that law firms can take to leverage their younger associates in ways that inspire them to do the great quality work expected of them. On the other side of the coin, he also discusses the dangers of law firms disregarding millennials and expecting them to adapt to how business has been done for decades. I hope you enjoy our conversation. JP, thanks so much for joining us on the Case Tax Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's a real honor to have you on to talk about millennials in the law and a lot of work that you've done to try to comprehend the place of millennials in the law. I want you to start from the top, though, because you have a very interesting and illustrious legal career. How did you find yourself being a thought leader who is an expert on millennials in the legal workplace? Well, thank you very much for uh, first describing me as illustrious. I appreciate that. Really excited to be on the Modern Lawyer podcast and have this conversation with you. So my story from the 30,000 foot level is, you know, like a lot of young kids kind of grew up dreaming of becoming a lawyer. And when I graduated from law school, I went to work for a big firm out in Washington, D.C., And I had suspected that that would be the place where I would be for the foreseeable future. I had designs of becoming a partner there someday, really throwing myself into that firm's work. And what happened is I became what I deemed the Goldilocks of young associates. And I thought that at the time, my zigzagging career path, which I'll tell you about, was unique. But what I've come to understand is that my experiences as the successful yet unfulfilled young associate are part of a shared arc of experiences of millennials in the law and other professions. So I stayed at that big firm in DC for about two and a half years before pulling the plug, moving back to my home city of Denver, Colorado, worked for a big firm out here for two years. And then my final two years were at a small firm in Denver that actually subleased space from that bigger firm and created for a few awkward elevator rides. And then that small firm merged into a mid-sized national firm during my final six months there. So in a way, I worked for law firms of from the big to the small and everywhere in between. And JP, so you, you graduated from Georgetown Law, and I take it that 
at Georgetown Law, like a lot of other top flight law schools, what's pushed on you as, as is pushed on every other student is success means going to a big law firm. That is how you show the world and judge other people's success. Were you susceptible to that as well? What were your motivations in going to that big prestigious law firm in DC? That's a great question. I wish I were more thoughtful at the time, but to answer that question honestly, in a lot of ways, it was the path of least resistance. So you have all the big firms coming onto campus for on-campus interviews. They are hiring dozens of young associates offering you know, amazing summer associate programs and the promise of a job. And so in a lot of ways, during my law school time, I worked for the Brady Center, which is a nonprofit group committed to curtailing gun violence. And so I had this social mission behind me during my law school days. And I kind of went into the big law route, not being as thoughtful as I wish I were, but kind of having the, you know, this is the red carpet laid out for me, for my fellow students. And there's a lot of amazing things you can do in big law, whether it's through pro bono work or whether it's through different practice groups. And so I went there knowing that it was a different path than I thought that I might have been on, but still very excited about it. And what quickly happened to me is that each of these law firms that I worked for, for about two years, which coincidentally is the average tenure for a millennial in a new job, I didn't find the right niche. And I pulled the plug on each of these firms right at the time when I had gained the trust of partners and the respect of clients so much so that clients would call me directly about new and ongoing cases. And so when I left each of these firms, disappointed partners wanted to know why. And at the time, I didn't have a great answer to their questions. I was simply following an instinct that my journey did not end at that particular law firm. And I eventually went into an entirely new direction about three and a half years ago, co-founded a merino wool children's apparel company called Chasing Windmills. And my wife and I run that company together. We still do it. We've connected with customers in every state and over two dozen countries. And I really loved this path of mine, but I was still plagued by those questions from disappointed partners. Why are you leading us? And I wanted to answer for them as much for myself. Why did I give 10 years of my life to this profession? Why did I start it with so much optimism and enthusiasm and ultimately didn't find the right niche for myself. And as I stumbled upon research into millennials, all of a sudden I started to have this language and this lens through which I could look back upon my experiences as a young associate and start to place them in a broader context. And I also started to formulate my vision for what a future of the traditional law firm could be in terms of finding a spot for millennials who can be inspired, who are part of a community, and have my zigzagging career path not be the story for everybody, but to have more folks find the right home and the right type of law firm. And so that's led me to my second career rebirth, which is really trying to connect with thought leaders in the legal community, with partners at law firms, big and small, and trying to present for them this is the way that you can connect with and motivate and inspire the youngest generation of attorneys. So, JP, yeah. I mean, it, it's 2015. 
you co-found Chasing Windmills with your wife. You're in, you're in Denver. The law and law practice and all of the, the worst parts of the legal industry are in your rear view, right? Yet you can't stay away, right? You couldn't keep away. I mean, you, there's something that drew you back. And you mentioned that you couldn't get those partners' questions out of your head. Why are you leaving us, JP? What didn't work here? Why didn't you just leave it in your rear view and just work on making the best merino wool children's wear that you could possibly make? I think it was in part living out the vision of my grandfather, who I talk about him in my book. His parents were Italian immigrants, settled into a coal mining community in Wyoming. And his dream someday for himself was to become a lawyer. Um, he graduated from high school when he was 16 years old, and his reward was you get to go join your dad in the coal mine. In a coal mining accident, he severed parts of two of his fingers, which he said was the best thing that ever happened to him because he got workers' compensation and enrolled at the University of Wyoming with designs of eventually becoming a lawyer. World War II interrupted that, and he left the University of Wyoming early and served out the duration as a military policeman during wartime. But during that process, met his, you know, now my grandmother, started a family, and never had the chance to pursue that dream. But it's something that he passed down to his kids and to his grandkids. And, you know, it was, growing up, it was this reverence for the law that I felt through my grandfather. And so... It's, it's something that was deeply ingrained within me. And, you know, the optimism, the idealism that he saw in the law as a way to make equals of all people, as the backbone of a free and democratic society, as this prestigious, altruistic calling was something that was ingrained in me from an early age. And so I think that was part of the tug at my heart in terms of I realized my grandfather's dream. Why did I go off in this different direction? Right, right. And, and so when those questions from those partners would kind of haunt you, right, at what point did you say, hey, you know, I've got a deep familial tradition in the business of law, the practice of law, a lot of the prestige and reputation that goes along with the law and its great potential. What were the first steps you took towards being who you are now, who is an expert on millennials in law firms and things law firms can do to make their law firms more friendly and more productive working environments for millennials? This kind of the formal steps towards this venture really started kind of opportunistically with one of the partners from my old firm in Denver invited me out to breakfast because this was after I'd already left, was already doing Marina Wool Children's Apparel. And he said, you know, we brought in a millennial consultant at our firm partnership retreat and she gave us a lot of interesting things to think about, and I just want to pick your brain. And his questions towards me were, you're the kind of person why we hired this person. We want to keep people like you at our firm. And the consultant who is a, an expert in the field, who knows, you know, has done a lot of research and studies into millennials, never actually practiced law. And so a lot of the advice she gave wouldn't fit within a traditional law firm setting, and so he was trying to push me. This was the advice she gave. Is there a way we could actually make this work at our firm that will respect the business of what we do, the practice of what we do, 
and how we mentor our youngest attorneys. And so that conversation with him really inspired me to start answering those questions. And so that led me on a path where, you know, I took a deep dive into all the research that was out there from academia to consulting firms and started to write in lawyerly periodicals about, okay, this is my advice to that partner. What should we do to have a productive, inspired young workforce at our firm? And so that was the opportunistic genesis of what I started to do. Got it, got it. So I think a lot of our listeners are very comfortable and educated as to the fact that a lot of millennials are not very happy with the practice of law as associates, right? I mean, I think that's conventional wisdom at this point. Certainly some are, and and there's many millennials now who are in fact making partner, right? And, And thriving in big law. But I think the conventional wisdom is that maybe they're the exceptions that prove the rule. Can you go over the problems that millennials have with law practice and then which of those problems law firms can actually act on and which other problems really are just, you know, situations where law firms have to say, tough luck, this is a hard business. We have demanding clients. This is professional services, you know, deal with it. But what are some of those uh, the, those issues or problems or concerns that millennials have in law practice? There's, there's a couple that I'll highlight right off the bat. One is the intense focus, especially for young lawyers passed down from their more senior colleagues, the intense focus on the business side of law. So that includes trying to motivate young attorneys through billable hours. You know, hey, JP, if you could use the hours, I could really use your help on this case. Always harping upon the business side of the law as the means to motivate a young attorney. You look at study after study, millennials overwhelmingly believe that businesses across the board focus too much on profits and not enough on their impact upon society, upon their community, upon the planet. And so when you are leading with a profit vision for young associates, it's going to fall flat more times than not. And so trying to work with law firms to Let's not motivate through the business side of law. Let's talk about the practice of law. Let's reclaim our status as a profession that selflessly represents and helps others solve their problems. Another big issue that I see is the pitting of work and life against each other. And so you'll see a lot of law firms very prevalently promote on their website and their marketing materials, we offer work-life balance. But... The research shows, talking with young associates, they don't want to balance their work against their life. They want work to be an interesting and enhancing aspect of life. And so it is, a, in a lot of ways, a jarring experience for a young attorney to come into a law firm and the worldview that they bring in doesn't always coincide with the motivation structure, the hierarchical structure at a law firm. And for a long time, law firms, like a lot of businesses, had the view, we're going to make these young attorneys more like us. But I think what we've discovered, especially as millennials are streaming into the legal profession, that change isn't going to happen 
And so we have to switch over to, okay, how can we connect with and inspire this youngest generation of lawyers? But JP, are we kind of doomed in a world where the billable hour is the controlling part of law firm business models? And I'm not just saying, oh, if we move from the billable hour to alternative fee arrangements, this cures the problem. The billable hour really creeps through every part of an attorney's day. And it does a lot of things. One of them is it oftentimes disincentivizes creativity, right? You know, why do something more efficiently or why streamline something or why think outside the box when there are pathways in place where you can do X project in 28 hours? And you know what? You're going to shoot to do it in 28 hours. Why do it in 12 hours if you're not really rewarded for that, right? I mean, so are we dealing with a, a greater structural problem here than just kind of corporate speak as to work-life balance or, you know, how we talk to, to the millennials? Do law firms have a greater looming problem on their hands? I would say they do and they don't. So to start with, they do. I've always been a very efficient person who finds the quickest, most effective way to solve a problem. And that really backfired on me during my time as a lawyer, because the fact that I could write a brief in six hours that might take associate, yeah, another associate 12 hours, it just meant that I had to get additional work to fill in my day. And so I was always kind of ramped up near a red line, having my efficiency work against me and not impact the firm any differently than someone who worked more slowly than I did. And so like a lot of folks, I did chafe against the notion of billable hours. And I've also talked to firms that have tried to connect with millennials by doing things like, let's do yoga Wednesdays, and we'll do that from eight to nine and start the day kind of in a nice meditative stretching exercises. And attendance was very low for it. And I talked to the associates and they said, if I give up an hour, that means I'm just going to work an hour later because they still expect my billable hours to be the same. So in a sense, the premise of your question, yes, law firms do have a problem with billable hours. I don't think it's a problem that's not solvable, even if we have the billable hour framework in place. And let me explain by that. We have this intense focus on billable hours, which I think is actually more insidious than the actual metric itself. I believe that if we focus on the work, the billable hours will take care of themselves. Let me give you an example. Motivating through the business side of law. Having a partner come into my office, hey, JP, if you could use the hours, I could use your help on this project. Let's say it's a construction defect case, which I worked on a fair number of those. A much better lead-in would be, hey, JP, we have this homeowners association that's having a really rough go of it. Roofs are leaking. Sidewalks are cracking. We need to hold the general contractor and the developer responsible. We need to improve these people's lives. Can you help me on this case? And right from the get-go, I am connected to the altruistic nature of what we do as lawyers. And I'm going to be billing time to that case, but it's not the billable hour that's going to make me stay at the office. That's going to make me work hard on that matter. And so I think in a lot of ways, billable hours can be part of what we do and part of how we run the business of law, but we need to move away from it as the reason we practice. And JP, that kind of goes to another thing that you talk about and you've written about, and that's the millennial mindset, right? 
correct me if that is kind of a different concept, but isn't the commitment to wanting to actually solve a problem in the world, irrespective of, you know, X number of hours or profits to the firm, isn't that a part of the millennial mindset? And if so, what are the other parts of that millennial mindset? Absolutely. You know, I talk a lot about the belief in doing well by doing good, that you have a group of, you know, millennials are the most highly educated, most highly groomed generation in history. And they arrive at the law firm on day one with notions of making a real difference in their community, a real difference in the world. And so rather than trying to tamper that enthusiasm down, my pitch to law firms is let's figure out a way to harness that youthful exuberance that oftentimes comes across from the perspective of the employer as entitlement. I try to recast it as you have an incredibly eager, excited group of young associates who want their chosen career to be a positive impact upon their community, upon their clients' lives. And so let's figure out a way to get there. So that's a big part of it. And in my book, I kind of walk through these seven core principles of the millennial mindset and how firms can connect with those. And so we have you know, the one that we just covered, the belief in doing well by doing good. The second one is the strong preference for great experiences over high pay. Interestingly, Pew Research Center did a study, only 15% of millennials believe having a high paying career is one of the most important things in their lives. And so, again, it's if you are leading with pay, you will get people in the door, but you will not get people staying there and committed to you for the long term. And yeah, so I J- talk a lot about how can we change the experience of practicing law. Yeah, JP, um, you know, I've had so many, you know, friends of mine who have gone to very, very prestigious law firms and have gotten the top of the pay scale. And they were, you know, on the corporate side essentially glorified proofreaders who were there in the office until 11 or midnight reading over agreements or contracts in in mergers and not even really knowing how they contributed. And despite the fact that they were making more money than they could have dreamt of in law school, they, the vast majority left after two, maybe three years max. And I think that kind of goes to what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I became a first year associate in 2007, September of 07. So it was before the financial collapse. And we saw first year associate salaries at big firms raise lockstep from 2006 to 2007, from 135,000 to 160,000. And we continue to see these raises, especially at big law, to try to solve the ongoing associate retention problem. And it is a big problem that costs the ABA in 2017 estimated associate attrition costs the average big firm $25 million per year. And so it's a huge problem. And the notion of we can solve this by improving our pay structure, I think gives a short-term bump, but long-term it doesn't connect with the ways where millennials want to work together. They want to do good in this world. They want to change the way they interact and view work. Again, work is an interesting and enhancing aspect of life. And so I think if we can focus more holistically on the experience of practicing law and what law firm culture looks like, we will succeed far beyond, I'm going to work at this law firm and pay off my debt, and then I'm going to do what I really want to do. I don't think it has to be that way anymore. 
So, you know, we've talked about this kind of millennial mindset. We've talked about some problems that millennials have with the status quo. You know, among them are they have a tendency towards experience over pay. They want a sense of purpose. They want work to be a part of their life and a kind of contributing part of their life. And I think to a lot of our listeners, they, they are probably saying, well, law firms, I'm sure, are, are trying to get there, but they're clearly not there yet, right? And I think your pay example is a great is a great one, and that is that law firms are almost are looking at this dial, and uh, in their minds, this dial, you know, if you dial it down, people are unhappy, right? If you if you reduce pay, you dial it up, they're going to be really happy. But with the millennial generation, maybe not as close of a correlation. So, I'm going to ask you an intentionally broad question, and that is. What are the steps that law firms can take right now? And I, I really, I'm referring to the AMLA 200 large firms, but in addition to that, medium-sized firms and maybe small small law firms and solos as well. What are the steps that they could take? Certainly not a, a yoga, you know, 8 a.m. yoga, right? So what are the things they can do to retain millennials, attract millennials, and I think most importantly, maybe across the board, make sure that those millennials are contributing at a very high level, efficiently and effectively. I think one of the first steps law firms can and should do is create a space and a permission structure for young attorneys to work together. And let me give an example of, of how this can happen. There's a firm in Chicago that I worked with that recently was renovating their offices and taking away a lot of the old paper space because you know we have digital copies of everything and trying to figure out what do we do with this extra space on each floor. And they decided to create on each floor kind of a 1,000 square foot lounge slash kitchen area. And they put in flat screen televisions, they put in couches, they put in tables. And the partnership, certain elements were very concerned about if we tell our young associates that it's okay for them to work outside of the four corners of an individual office, are they just going to hang out all day? Are, they, are we actually going to have our bottom line impacted? Will they still bill hours? And to their surprise and benefit, associate production actually went up when the partners came to them and said, this space is for you. You can work here. And the reason why is, most weekday nights, you will see groups of associates in there, laptops open, a baseball game on mute, ordering pizza, working together, talking together. And what they've done is they've destabilized these lines between work and life. And so they are, there's a sense of community at work. It's a place where they want to be. And as a result, they're actually working longer at the office. And so I think the, you know, you don't have to renovate your office space, but you do need to give, whether it's an old law library that you never use anymore because we're doing things electronically, but create a permission structure and a space for relationships to form, for a community to emerge and move away from the notion that work must be done quietly, silently, individually. I think that's kind of the, you know, the first immediate step. And if you walk into an office like that as a young associate, where it's just clear people like being here, associates are friends with each other, that is the type of place where people want to come back to day after day. And they go to the office with a sense of enthusiasm that really will impact not only just how happy people are there, but it will impact 
the work that they do and positively impact ultimately the bottom line for the firm. I think that's a really, really great example. I love that picture that you painted of a group of associates collaboratively working together in a law firm lounge. I'd imagine that a lot of partners, irrespective of their age, would just love that situation, right? I mean, it, it is a lot of associates coming together to try to solve problems together, doing work efficiently, doing work, you know, in, into the oftentimes wee hours of the night because they like it and they want to be there. Is there a world where law firms can kind of pull a page out of the startup environments book? You know, I asked this because I came from a large law firm that didn't have a lounge like that. And, uh, you know, my the next job I had immediately after that was here at Case Text, right, where I've been for, for close to four years now. And I've noticed how an open floor plan has a lot of problems with it, right? It can be loud and distracting. But one of the best parts about it is that it is, by its very nature, collaborative. What are the other things that law firms can do, you know, real estate-wise, renovation-wise, or other to make their millennial associates more productive? Well, I think that's a really interesting parallel you make with the startup world. And, you know, as someone who is in the startup community right now, it does influence a lot of my thinking, but I, I think we can borrow, whether it's from a startup or whether it's from a very established company like Southwest Airlines, things that other industries do well, we can begin to incorporate into law firm settings. So Southwest Airlines has the notion of, you know, if you take care of your people first, they will take care of your customers. So the focus of the business should be its employees and, not, and its customers should be second. And for a long time, that sounded ridiculous. But as you think about it, yes, if you empower people to be fulfilled and inspired at the office, they are going to take care of everybody they come into contact with outside the company as well. And another critical notion, I think, from the startup world that law firms can begin to incorporate is the notion that millennials don't think in terms of vertical hierarchies the way previous generations did. And let me kind of explain why. Millennials, by and large, grew up with very solid, very meaningful, peer-like relationships with benevolent adults in their lives. And so whether it was parents who made a lot of decisions with their kids, what do you want for dinner tonight? What should we do this weekend? Whether it was teachers or teachers or coaches, over and over, millennials heard from benevolent, caring adults in their lives. We care what you think. We want you to contribute. And so they take that mindset and that belief when they go into the office. And when the office is organized very much in a vertical hierarchy with that's a senior partner, you don't interact with that person. This is the junior partner level. This is the senior associate and all the way on down. It's a setting that millennials never were in growing up. And so one thing that I stress is rather than try to impress upon a young associate, this person's title is senior partner, hold that title in reverence. Millennials hold titles in less reverence than previous generations, but they will respect the role that people play. And so stressing the important roles that a senior partner plays, stressing the important roles that a paralegal plays and how they all come together to provide excellent service to our clients Millennials can get behind that and understand that. 
And so part of it is explaining, answering the question, why? Why is it what I do so important? Why do I want you to work hard in this way? And taking a chance to answer those teaching moments so that you have somebody who, if they understand why you've organized something in a certain way, they are more likely to buy into it. Whereas previous generations, just out of respect for the title, they would say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, I will do that, and not ask the question, well, why am I doing this? And so going a step further, embracing that teaching moment and clearly explaining what roles need to happen in order to provide great service to our clients. I want to play devil's advocate here because so far in this conversation, we have taken it as assumed that law firms should do things to try to make their millennial associates happy, to retain them, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure some of our listeners will say, this is ridiculous. There's law firms that have been around for over 200 years and the structure has been the same. Generation after generation after generation have come in to the you know largest, most prestigious law firms in the country. And those firms have not changed. The institutions have remained intact. It's the people that have changed. And if you don't want to change, then get out, right? I think a lot of voices here would, uh, would, would say it is up to the millennials to change. It's not up to the 200-plus-year-old institutions to change. What are the consequences of having that belief, and what is your response to that? So that is a question I, I do get from, I would say, at least every firm I speak with. Why can't they be more like us? Why can't they get on board? And I guess my, my answer is twofold. One, as of 2017, 43% of attorneys at the biggest 400 firms in the U.S. were millennials. By 2025, 50% of lawyers across the entire spectrum will be millennials. And so increasingly, millennials are your colleagues and your clients. And so if you have a business and practice model that doesn't connect with and doesn't understand this generation, you will set yourself up for setbacks moving forward. It is the largest working generation in the U.S. across the board right now, and it's a massive growing generation. And so secondly, Gen Xers in a lot of ways stressed their boomer colleagues. Gen Xers had a penchant for being the creative rebels, kind of rethinking the way businesses operate. But Gen Xers were also comfortable with the notion of paying their dues. I'm going to work here for five, six, seven years. And when I'm more senior, I'm going to lend my voice and I'm going to make changes. Whereas millennials on day one are adding the added stressor of, I believe I should have a voice on day one. I am part of the biggest working generation in the U.S. My parents, my teachers, my coaches have told me all throughout my life, we care about you. We want you to contribute and I'm gonna contribute on day one. And so rather than fighting that, my pitch to law firms is let's figure out a way to harness that because it's not just about let's be nice to the youngest generation. I don't succeed unless I lay out the business case for practicing in this way, for embracing the millennial mindset. And so really my vision of the law going forward is those firms that have an inspired young workforce those firms that understand how to connect with a millennial colleague and a millennial client, those are the firms that will be successful moving forward. And kind of more broadly looking at the legal profession as a whole, we are one of the few professions that 
is really undergoing a lot of turbulent change right now, whether it's from, you know, the legal Zooms of the world and the axioms of the world who are doing legal proxy services, whether it's from big companies doing more in-house work. The legal services industry is changing. Client demands are changing. Employee demands are changing. And so there's a temptation to say, hey, we sold the rotary telephone for 30 years and our clients loved it. But today it's the smartphone. And so trying to operate as if the world hasn't changed, I think is a bigger risk than taking steps towards a new law firm culture that has my goal, everyone from a millennial associate to a boomer partner working together effectively, harmoniously. I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that that has to be the answer, right? That this is not a touchy-feely let's coddle and take care of millennials thing, right? This is a business and bottom line issue. This is, is your firm that has been around for 200 years going to remain competitive with your peers that have been around for 200 years? And because there's no other way to do it, right? Millennials going forward are going to have essentially a monopoly over the labor force. So you either play their game in a way or you suffer severe consequences. You know, I kind of want to take that and fast forward, call it 15 years. And, and I want to ask you, what do firms look like when they are run entirely by millennials? Imagine a firm where all of the senior partners are millennials. You know, this, this may be in what, 20 plus years, right? So call it, you know, project out 20 plus years. What does that firm look like what do they do very well, and what do they not do very well? I can't wait to see that. It's an interesting thought experiment. I think those firms will have groups of partners who make decisions very collaboratively, for one, that really stress the group consensus in terms of what the firm wants to do. So moving away from the model of this is the chairman or chairwoman of the firm, she is our leader, he is our leader, moving from that powerful central figure more towards a hyper embrace of the partnership aspect of our profession and really trying to build consensus within a firm as to its direction, as to its goals. And I also think you'll see increasingly an office where the notion of working nine to five or eight to seven for attorneys We've started to see that eroded by our smartphones, but I think you will see we're all accustomed to work pushing into what traditionally was personal time, whether it's responding to emails at night or on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. But I think you'll also see kind of destabilization in terms of when life happens. So the notion of having people within a team organize their lives in a way that makes most sense to them, helps them access their most productive self at their most productive time and place. So it may be Jim swims every morning from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, is in the office by 9.30, but he's there until 8.30. Or Jane is leaves the office every day at 3.30 to spend time with her kids, but she's at the office at 7 a.m. working before everybody else. And so I think we will see more of an embrace in the millennial law firm of the future in terms of when and where work happens and understanding that we can be productive in unique ways that fit within our own 
personal lives. And I ultimately think it's important not just for us as people who work at these big institutions, big firms, but also for our clients who increasingly will lead lives that don't conform to the standard nine to five business day. And so if we've destabilized the lines between work and life, then the notion of a client having an emergency at 5 p.m. on a Friday, sure, without question, I'm going to jump on that and take care of that because I'm a lawyer, I'm a counselor in every sense of the word, but I might take off, if I work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I might take off Monday and go skiing. And so I, I think it will be a very destabilized yet highly productive work environment moving forward. That's really encouraging. The flip side of that is, what do you think law firms do very well now that you think millennials may not be as good at? That's a great question. I would say um, the willingness to take risks, I think is important for lawyers. It's important for any business owner to take a smart, calculated risk. One thing that I believe millennials need to be coached out of is the concern of missing out on the praise train. So I want to be perfect because I want that praise. And if you are trying something that's creative, that's innovative, there is a chance you will find a great new solution. There's a chance you may swing and miss. And so I think Gen Xers and boomers have built amazing firms and amazing companies with a comfort with taking smart, researched, calculated risks. I think that's something that my generation, the millennial generation, has to grow into to really be leaders moving forward. Um, having the courage of our convictions and knowing that, yes, sometimes we're going to make the right move and sometimes we're going to miss out. And if we miss out on the praise train and the process, that's okay because even a false step can be a step ultimately in the right direction. So JP, I know you do a fair amount of speaking. We've talked about your book, Millennial Lawyer. How can our listeners get a hold of you how do they get their hands on your book? How do they, I know you, you do a fair amount of speaking at, at bar associations. You do consulting with law firms. How could they reach out to you directly to have a conversation with you about things that they can do to increase retention or recruitment of, of millennial associates? Sure. The best place is my website, which is jpboxjr.com. That has all my contact information there. And my book, The Millennial Lawyer, is available on the ABA online shop or through Amazon. So I'm very grateful that millennials is a topic that people feel very passionate about, that people have strong sentiments about. And so usually we have a chance for a really great conversation. So I would love to continue the conversation. JP, I really appreciate your time in joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry, and we approach it from angles of technology and you know alternative legal services providers. But this could be the biggest change in the next 20 years that will impact the legal industry. Uh, the you know, human capital and millennials coming in with a completely different mindset changing the legal industry more rapidly than any generation maybe that has come before it. So thank you for all of your thoughts on this. I had a, a really fun time chatting with you and thanks again.
Well, likewise, it was great talking with you and really enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about JP's process for helping law firms of all sizes enable their millennial attorneys to flourish, check out his new book, The Millennial Lawyer, How Your Firm Can Motivate and Retain Young Associates. Find it on his website, jpboxjr.com. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.